Start in T minus ten seconds. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. We have ignition. Ahoy, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unconstitutional Awakening. Me and Morpheus, you know, we're we're actually blessed enough to be able to get Gary to come back and chat with us. I don't know if you met, you know, you guys remember Gary from a previous episode, but he's he's you know co-author and author of very many books, which of course we'll share again with this uh, with this broadcast. And we figured we'd uh, we'd talk about some scary things today, like different isms and uh, economics, and you know, just just a little bit of everything. Just have a good chat. So, uh, how's everybody doing today? Doing great. Um, really excited. Gary came back. Uh, I think the last time he was on, it was, you know, probably one of our best shows to date. Um, and so I, I'm just, you know, ready for Gary. We can take off on any subject that you wish. You're super gracious, Morpheus. I'm sure there are things that uh, uh, kind of follow on from where we uh, were last or from feedback that you guys have gotten from listeners. Uh, uh, yeah. Where, where would you like us to, uh, to get started? Go ahead, Jimmy. Yeah, um, you know, I guess I guess one thing that, you know, I noticed that a lot of people were asking me because, you know, I kept talking about things like, you know, like the one book, for example, The Market's Not Capitalism and, you know, just the different yeah. things about having having an actual free market. A lot of people, I guess, were worried that how would we exchange products and service without, you know, an official, you know, currency like, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, that's just. You know, I, I don't. I personally believe that there's ways around that, of course. And I just thought maybe you'd have a decent opinion on something like that. Well, so I guess um, my instinct is to say, first of all, uh, we need to look at the uh, the existing global environment, right? In the existing global environment, there's not one currency that uh, that operates. Uh, obviously, uh, we know that the dollar sometimes plays uh, the role of dominant currency, but not it's certainly not the only currency in play. And uh, people uh, are uh, uh, able to uh, you know exchange uh, on the basis of their use of a variety of currencies. Seems to me that. Uh, if you want something to be official, first of all, that can develop 
as a matter of convention, of social social convention, uh, doesn't have to be uh, imposed from the top down. Uh, if you do think it's important to have a single currency, uh, then that's presumably because it plays some important role uh, of one kind or another. And if that's right, people are going to see that and they're going to converge on uh, some uh, con- currency they're going to support. If, as seems to me more likely, a lot of different currencies might have uh, different uh, values for people. Uh, I don't see why exchange is any more difficult in principle. Uh, in uh, the kind of uh, free society we're envisioning than uh, exchanges uh, possible right now in a global environment where there's no single uh, single currency you know right and and I, I guess I guess I guess most people don't understand alternatives you know in into situations like this you know they I guess you know we've all been raised with the with the one notion that you know you've got to use a specific kind of currency or a specific kind of market even you know like the cronious markets we have today you right. know I, I I personally, I hear a lot of people always talk about, you know, capitalism, this capitalism, that, but I don't, I don't actually see our current market as a capitalist market. I see it more as a cronious market because lobbying rules, of course. And, and I mean, eventually, you know, ultimately the market, I think would choose the, you know, the timing of the death of like the current currency and such. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, uh, again, as regards whether this is a, quote, capitalist market or not that we currently have, obviously depends a lot on how we're how we're using the terms. And we talked about this, uh, talked about this last time. I've I've tried to, you know, argue in print uh, for, uh, you know, the use of. alternative expressions like freed markets with the understanding that, uh, you know, capitalism is for, for many people a label for exactly what they don't want. It's a label for what we currently have, which is clearly distorted. But if you want to say instead, look, uh, you know, I'm going to hold out the view that to use that famous Rand phrase, capitalism is the unknown ideal. If you want to use the, the word for that, I, I just, I don't think there's any point in our having, having fights about the words. What I do want to say is that, um, what you say seems to me exactly right, that uh, uh, absent uh, top-down control, absent cronyism, I think we settle on uh, on current on a currency or currencies uh, over time as people's preferences are apparent and they interact with each other and yeah, settle on uh, on uh, consensus points. So absolutely. And I think it would kind of be like a, a core foundation of a society without rulers the diversification in currencies, yes, because it would be less centralized different groups of businesses or individuals would get together to back currency and give it a value and it would have less top-down control. Um, I I just think that a lot of people get the cognitive dissonance um, when they're trying to understand how that would work. And it it would work the same way money does now. A business (laughs) would let you know, you know, what currency they accept. Yeah, and as, you know, look as we know, there's this extended period, for instance, in uh, Scottish history uh, of, of free banking in the uh, latter part of the 18th century, where uh, you know individual banks are are producing currency. Uh, in the global environment today, again, seems to me uh, we have a, a clear model of uh, different currencies interacting. So uh, yeah, that just doesn't feel to me like some big insurmountable. Uh, uh, insurmountable problem. I, like, like I guess from my perspective, I see that you know people tend to be, I guess, brand specific loyal. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. They go after the brand that their grandfather, you know, you know, their grandfather used and stuff like yep. that. And, and so with that, like, you know, since we have all that brand specificness in current times, it, it, it seems that that's to me. It seems that that's what's even keeping you know our our quite crumbling dollar bill. 
even doing anything in, in the states because you know i mean you, you don't you're not going to show up with some rubles to mcdonald's and, and they're going to accept it you know what i'm saying so it's, it's it it just uh <clears throat> i don't know it seems some interesting things with my perspective i guess there. i don't know yeah. And I mean, I think if you if you show up with some other currency to McDonald's, they're not going to take it. No doubt, partly because of brand loyalty, but also just because of transaction costs. You know, we got to are we going to we, we can't run an exchange here and so forth. But I think it's easy to imagine uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, that could function quite differently. Right. You can imagine just as uh, you come in and process, uh, say, credit card payments at McDonald's from a lot of different uh, different places. You can imagine somebody coming in and processing a you know, an electronic payment in Bitcoin and somebody else is taking stable coin and, you know, those just get exchanged uh, in real time, uh, you know, in the moment. So it becomes an actual free market at that point because you're free to choose your form of exchange or not. Yeah. And and that will dictate your ability to make money. And I think one of the common misconceptions a lot of people have is that in order for there to be a free market, there has to be a top-down state control. And that just, to me, I have a hard time ra- you know, rationalizing that concept. Oh, yeah. No, I think that's precisely a mistake, right? Because what, what we see is when there is that top-down control, that's such an invitation to uh, you know, the wealthy and well-connected to use uh, access to power to manipulate the system in their own benefit, uh, to, to their own benefit. It's not the case that somehow uh, that top-down control ensures that you've got genuinely open exchange. Instead, it's the natural prerequisite to uh, interference with that open exchange in the interests of the, those who are well-connected. Uh, you know, it's not it's not random, right? It's not as if uh, the interference happens uh, to the benefit of somebody who gets picked out of the phone book. It's uh, interfer- the interference works to the benefit of those with access to power and the ability to influence those with power. So, well, and that's, and that's, and that's like, you know, you guys talking about like the different currencies being, you know, in the, in the different credit card companies and stuff like that being taken in one place. I can think of something, you know, like a good example that's two technically, technically it's two different currencies, which you, a lot of your, uh, like gas stations or service stations, not only do they accept, you know, cash and credit, but a lot of them are now, especially in the South anyway, are accepting like EBT in places. And I mean, I, I understand mm-hmm. that's still a form of cash, but like it's, it's, you know, it's a different processing system. So, I mean, they're capable of processing something different, a different way. So I just think that there would be better advances in accepting, you know, mass amounts of currency than trying to force everybody into one global digital currency, like, you know, you're hearing about openly with like the World Economic Forum and stuff. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, yeah, a single currency just seems to me a huge invitation to uh, to uh, bad behavior on the part of those with power. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I would like to get your take. You know, um, there's a lot of, you know, speculation from different opinions on it. You know, is it possible you think for our current like inflation you know situation with the value of our currency is it even remotely possible that that was an accident or is this absolutely you know or is this something that you feel is intentional yeah i mean i'm always suspicious i guess of people with power. And so I think people with power, uh, as we know, are not randomly selected members of the population. They're people who are 
or, uh, you know, disproportionately likely to be people who are interested in power and who are adept at acquiring and maintaining it. And so that always leaves open the possibility of intentional bad behavior. On the other hand, when it's not as if there is just one unified center of power, you got a lot of people with influence right. operating in different spaces. And so I'm more inclined to think that an explanation that appeals to deliberately manipulative bad behavior, and I'm not saying that kind of explanation can't be right, but I think I want to start out with a spontaneous order explanation that focuses on you know all the different uh, actors uh, and what the kind of emergent social properties are of whatever they're doing, rather than it's being the case that uh, a bunch of people are sitting around in a smoke-filled room uh, deciding <laughs> that some bad thing is going to happen. Not saying that that's sense. possible. I'm just saying I don't start with that. Uh, no, no, it makes sense not to begin there and to rule out all, all possibilities. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And do you think that, you know, is there a way out? Well, is there a way out? Um, I'm just an instinctively optimistic type. And so I want to believe that there is, that indeed there has to be a way out. Um, but... I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not Moses uh, guiding everybody into the promised no. land. I can tell you what that is. I, it seems to me that there's going to be, you know, an increasing perception on the part of ordinary people that there are, I hope there's going to be a perception that they can find ways to root around what uh, uh, power structures are, are doing. And certainly I think alternative currencies make that possible. Uh, various other kinds of alternative institutions might make that possible. Um, you know, an operation as big and top heavy uh, and inefficient as uh, the U.S. empire, it seems to me, is always running the risk of collapsing under its own weight. Um, yeah. Obviously, um, the big challenge, it seems to me, for those of us who want uh, free societies is to see, is to make sure that we're contributing to kind of building up institutions that are ready to step in if that kind of collapse happens. Because obviously, if you have a collapse of a bad institution, it doesn't matter that it's a bad institution. If it's the only institution you open up, you know, uh, oh, opportunities yeah. for chaos, you know, you don't want, you know, you don't want Mad Max world. And so right. you have to make sure that you're laying the groundwork for alternative institutions to step in and increasingly, uh, you know, provide, uh, you know, dispute resolution and safety and, and you know, the things that, uh, you know, could be threatened uh, if the system collapsed. Because I do think the system is top heavy and very, very expensive. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's great. That's a, a great perspective. Well, Thank you. Uh, well, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, currently there's there's a thriving market for the state. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Unfortunately, like there's, there's, yeah. 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 And and so I guess, you know, ultimately, though, like that, that that same exact market is eventually going to thrive for something else. You know, I mean, like it. it there's it is in different you know different sectors I feel already you know it's got sure. it's branched off in all kinds of different ways because you got people that are that are truly trying to reject the state because I mean they've they've kind of let us down you know they they've definitely not done the job that they were originally sought out to do and I I guess 
I guess I keep hearing everybody say inflation. And personally, I'm looking at it as our dollars, our current dollars on the way of like Venezuela. Like it's just the, it's, it's really just, you know, the, the, the value of that currency is, is about useless now. It's getting there to that point. Yeah. No, I think there's uh, the, um, the, the real puzzle I think we all confront right now is, yeah, how, uh, how to think about what does seem to be an artificially propped up uh, uh, currency arrangement, right? That, uh, uh, yeah, there's real reason to, to wonder about. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, like, I, it, I, guess, I guess in looking at other things, I, I, had, a, I had another another economics guy on here the other week, actually, his, uh, his name's Kirk Elliott. And he's, uh, he's big into, like, gold. And, you know, he, he keeps actually saying buy silver here recently. And I mean, you know, I, I, I guess I could agree with that because silver is something that has kind of tested time as far as, you know, having having value at the end of the day. And, and I, you know, I try to, I guess, encourage people to look at other alternative currencies because I don't know. I personally don't know how I feel about a digital currency being the alternative currency. That just seems leaving the hands and, you know, into more control again and, and just kind of looping back into where we are today. And, I, and I'd like to say, like, to your point that I'm no financial advisor. So I want to say that first. But it, it, as Gary said, if the state were to collapse tomorrow, let's say things that can be used to make other things that people need or and or want will st- have value still. Sure. They like in. You know, and I think that's what people really need to think about. And I like the idea of alternative currencies and crypto. There's a lot of people in there that are good intended, but there's also not. There's also bad actors. And I try to get people to think about if the internet didn't exist, so you had your own stuff off the internet, who would want it? Right. Right. What could it do for you? So enjoy making doing what you do with that but you have to think that that could be taken away sure, sure. <clears throat> and i mean you know i and and I, obviously you know you you know not 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 meaning this in any kind of way obviously but you've seen you know more of the united states market i guess than you know we we have we're, we're obviously you know quite a little bit younger than you are and there's you know so you've probably seen the dollar you know really tank compared to how i've seen it yeah, I mean, I was a kid, of course, in the, the days of crazy stagflation in the, the late uh, 70s when, uh, yeah, the, uh, you know, everything was uh, everything was going wrong at once. So, oh, yeah. When that whole, you know, what happened after 71, when, you know, the whole the, the whole oil crunch and, yeah, yeah. And, the, and, the, and coming off the gold standard all the way. Yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely made a big, you know, jump. I, I I think that was an early jump in like closing that gap of like middle class and lower class because you know it, it corporations at that point continued to go you know skyrocket and you've got the rest the rest of the little guys out here kind of running stagnant across the way and you know of course it, it peaked up again a little bit later down the road but it's it just seems like it's it's that again like I I personally feel we're headed towards you know like another depression type style era where it's gonna be our small communities that are going to end up what what's thriving when, as the dollar continues to collapse. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I don't have, uh, I don't have the ability to, uh, to foresee the future, but I think sure. it's very important for us to be, to be talking about 
what kinds of institutions we want to be supporting if so that we're ready to be part of conversations uh, that are going to happen if we find ourselves in that situation. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that every dollar you spend, where you spend it is pretty important. You know, if if you you're you're in and you can replace the dollar with any currency, but when you're purchasing something in one way or another, you got to be very careful of who you're supporting. Right. I mean, because oh, I mean, no, no, nobody's nobody's good. Nobody's as good at eliminating competition as the state. You know what I mean? And, that is know, so true. We, we can't. We can't. You know it. There's people out there that don't, you know, don't shop at specific stores or don't use specific things. And at the end of the day, I tell them, you know, you know, your tax dollars are still giving subsidies to these Amazons and to these Walmarts and stuff like that. Like, you know, you're still giving them money regardless of your, you know, holding out on it. But I say, you know, try to invest more of your personal money in the mom and pop store or in the mom and pop restaurant and stuff like that. Places, places you want to see flourish, kind of like you guys are saying, instead of, you know, your super chains and your, you know, your soup, like there, we've got a new bank group popping up all over down here in the, in the Southeast. I know out in Texas Golf? and stuff. Truist. I never heard of that. Okay. Yeah. I just check this out. So no, I doing my research into them. They actually were the T in the BB and T bank. Oh, interesting. They were, okay. they were, they were who merged. They were one of the original banks in this country before the fed even came along and they merged when all of that stuff happened. And um, BB&T, the BB&T side decided they were going a different route. So this truest has stepped aside and is trying to go a different route than, you know, your, your regular bankings. It's, it's, it's leaning more towards like a credit union type, type style, but you know, in the, in the banking world, and I've actually, somebody who doesn't trust the banking system, uh, this, this group seems to be like, you know, they've at, they're an institution I would want to get behind as far as if, you know, hmm. other mm-hmm. banks were starting. Like the way they're, appro- the way they're approaching their model is yes. worth supporting is what you're saying. Okay, cool. And, that and makes so sense. I do recommend Good everybody check that. them out. Like they're, they're, they're still up and coming yet. They're, you know, they're old, but it's, and there's, and the story behind them I thought was kind of neat. You know, it's actually still the same, the same family from like the seven, you know, the, like the late, 17 early 1800s that started this bank on wow. American soil. That's Still amazing today. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, but it's institutions like that, even, you know, that you, I think is, it's important to start backing. Like you, you, we really should be, you know, trying to back all of these small local hometown, you know, soap makers or tea makers or whatever it is that you're going to need in your everyday life. Because, you know, when, when the Walmarts crumble or the grid crumbles or the state, crumbles or whatever crumbles you know you you've got to have these other things that are already kind of established that you could still kind of rely on because sure if the federal government shut down tomorrow you're you know my little small town in the corner of georgia honest to god probably isn't going to be greatly affected i think we would continue to find ways to thrive in our own sense and i think i think there needs to be more of that across the country personally anything you got morpheus well I, I just want to, I think that we a, as a society have to just understand that the, the institutions we trust uh, is going to affect us for a long time. 
So the only way to get institutions in power that we do trust is to quit accepting institutions that we don't trust. People feel obligated to participate. Well, if you don't vote, then you shouldn't have an opinion. And then they keep people off the ballots, you know, and they only allow these people on the ballots. And uh, I, I think we all just need to stop believing this illusion of choice that we're giving and we don't live in a free market the marijuana the marijuana industry is a great example legalization is a word that a lot of people misunderstand deregulation is what needed to happen laws removed from the books not more laws created making a pay-to-play atmosphere and basically making giant corporations be able to afford the permits and licensing to be legal and outpricing the little guys, just showing further that capitalism is not a free market. Right. I mean, it, 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 to me, to me, I don't think that, you know, that our current market is anywhere close to a free market. Oh, no. I mean, you know, again, <clears throat> Economics is still economics, and we can perform kind of rational economic analysis of what's of what's happening. But the background conditions are not ones that are set uh, by uh, by people's free choices. And so, even if people are choosing freely within those constraints, the constraints themselves are the products of all kinds of intervention that uh, we need to be uh, aware of. And again, I want to stress what I hope is is obvious, namely that the interventions systematically tilt in predictable ways, right? It's not the interventions right. are just there uh, to benefit, you know, the in- interventions are not there to benefit, um, you know, uh, uh, people without power. They're clearly there to benefit the people with power. Well, I mean, even, you know, I guess, I, I guess our dollar should really be an example because, you know, it, it, it was one central banking type dollar deal, you know, that they got for our whole country and tried to spread around the world or whatever. But like, at the end of the day, I, you, you see how bad it's actually become, and I don't see how people think replacing it with another fiat currency. Like I, everybody's on this big like bit, Bitcoin push, Bitcoin push, and I'm personally I'm not I'm not big into the digital currency world. I've just I, that was one of those things that even growing up younger, listening to my grandfather talk, you know, he was just like, don't ever let them make your you know make your money just numbers on a computer because then you don't have any money, and I, I truly believe that. Yeah, so I, I think, I guess what I would say from, you know, the, the thing I'm, I'm able to say with confidence sure. is that you want to have a, um, a market in which different currency options can be assessed and, you know, as people determine what they really can um, trust, what, what currencies are really reliable and uh, this can be tested in the course of ongoing market exchange and through crises and, and so forth. Uh, I think that's the important thing, to have a system that allows for the genuine uh, kind of winnowing and assessment of currency alternatives uh, so that no alternative is imposed on us uh, as, uh, as the only available option. And so that if something does turn out to be a fad you know, there may be some people who uh, uh, experience some negative consequences there, but overall, people are going to figure that out and move on. You know, I think that makes sense. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, and it's, and it's stuff like that, you know, I guess, I guess, I guess people always, you know, they, they, they don't really look at the, the market aspect of things. They just look for like trigger words, you know, like right. I, when I, cause for example, I have made mention of like, you know, one of the books you've edited to people before I say markets, not capitalism. And I, I couldn't tell you how many times people are just like, oh, and I'm like, you got to pump the brakes for a second, buddy, and go read the book because I, I think you're just getting upset and making an assumption right there, you know, right, you know, right off the bat. And I guess, you know, I mean, there's nothing I can do about people and trigger words, like you said before, not, not even waste my time with it. And I, I tend not to because I try to find alternative, alternative ways to talk about it. And, you know, these I'm guys, not as polite. When a conservative on one of my pages says that to me, I tell them that I hate Biden more than they do and to read books and to come back when they're ready to speak to adults and understand what we're um, So I, I have a lower threshold of politeness when it comes to things like that. But I, I think it's just really important that people just take power into their own hands by simple everyday means, you know, as far as leaning more towards a free market, buy fruit from the person that doesn't have a license. Do that. Right. You know, baby steps. Um, so, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, go right ahead. I, I got to hear this. I, wanna, I got something good though, too. Well, no, I was just going to, I was just going to um, make the, uh, the observation that uh, um, I'm sure you're very much aware of the uh, uh, approach that, uh, you know, we might associate uh, with Sam Conkin, who I think would say exactly what, what you're saying there, right? Yeah. That it, that is by supporting when you can the folks who are outside the uh, the kind of state power nexus you're serving to strengthen alternatives yes exactly I, I, well that's and that's what i was going to say you know like on I, I don't i don't do it as full time as i used to i still do it you know every now and then but i i run a a, a, a pirate free uh a peanut trailer like i go out to different places and i'll get permission from the owner of a gas station or something to find that loophole around having to have this five thousand dollar license that the state of georgia wants me to have because as long as the gas station gives me permission to use their property they usually don't yeah, even bother right me. you know right. so you know i'm doing a special for the gas station that day selling boiled peanuts and you know other stuff out of my i got i got a cool trailer that i haul behind my van i can do boiled peanuts i've actually been discussing doing kettle corn and stuff like that just you know, and I do like a little vegetable stand stuff out of the garden and stuff from home and then cooking the fresh stuff there on the spot. And, you know, I love it when folks come up there and, and support my little tiny, tiny renegade business there that I got going yeah, on. And, and, absolutely. and, you and know, I think I, it was back to our first conversation that we had when Bandit was here yeah. that you lead by example. Yes. You show people there's an alternative way that the work and the more we do it the more people realize like, Hey, this is a lot better. Like just I'm, I'm running a business without permission. I like this better. And I, I don't know. I'd like to get your take on that. Here. Um, say, say just a little more, if you wouldn't mind. Well, I, I just think that to help show people that there's alternatives, we just need to encourage behavior, like agorist almost behavior of working within the bounds of not having guns stuck at your face, 
but also not supporting the system. Yeah. So it seems to me that uh, um, I, I guess I'd want to put the point maybe positively rather than negatively. That is, it's not about not supporting the system. It's about when you can supporting those people who are themselves uh, stepping outside the, the bounds of the system. So it's actively underwriting uh, the choice to, uh, to, build, uh, to build something alternative, whether it's the, the peanut truck or something, uh, you know, or something else. Uh, I think, and of course, yeah, again, we, you, you reference uh, agorism and uh, Konkin certainly deserves a lot of, um, a lot of gratitude for, for thinking about that. Um, you know, I, I'm enough of a pluralist, enough of a kind of eclectical, ecumenical type that I'm, you know, open to lots of other alternatives. But I think it's super important when you can uh, to give a thumbs up to folks who are experimenting with, with alternatives. I, one of my favorite uh, just kind of general points, which I find myself making repeatedly in different contexts, I think, think John Stuart Mill was right, that there's something hugely important about uh, what he called experiments in living with the idea that, you know, people explore different ways of, of doing things, different ways of being human, different ways of addressing social problems. But then they put those on display for other people. And in doing that, they can they can do a service either way, right? If what they're doing works, other people can learn from them and emulate them. Even if they don't uh, find that uh, what they're doing works, other people can learn not to do what they've done or to do it uh, in a somewhat different way. Either way, putting alternatives on display is one of the most powerful means, it seems to me, of making social change happen. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I completely agree there. I mean, because I, I think that's a big reason that uh, I personally kind of like the TikTok app in its early days before it even got, you know, even more than insane that it is, but because there's people on there putting their, their skills on display. Like there's so many homesteaders, there's so many, you know, home, you know, people doing their own, own, you know, thing and, you know, making a buck off of it from construction stuff to, you know, homemade goods to everything in between. And, and I thought it was great to see this entirely free internet place of people just sharing knowledge with each other like it like kind of like the internet was to begin with instead of yeah. before it became the big giant festering argument that it constantly is today because you know that's that's a lot of what the internet well is. remember i got removed for a video i made of the chinese military using geoengineering to cover up the massacre of uyghurs and i can never use the platform again they won't allow it it's not the it's not the first time either <laughs> Yeah. So, um, not, I didn't mean to get off subject there. And, and so, uh, I know you had some more points that, um, you and I were discussing. Sure. Yeah, actually I do. Let me, uh, let me pull them back up. We've been, you know, we've been going over some other stuff cause we did actually have that, uh, that guy we had a few episodes on as well too ago from Australia coming with us today, but he had something caught, you know, come up. And so we appreciate Terry for not being able to make it, but that's okay. But he uh, he had like some you know he had some good hypothetical questions and stuff and he was worried about things y'all you guys were they were worried about things like uh, private ownership and stuff like that I, I you know I mean I'm I guess in a sense I'm not too worried about that as much as I am uh, you know like like capital like I guess the current system is under duress and that's you know that's a clear a clear thing and so we're I guess we were trying to look for 
I believe there's a way for all different systems to exist, you know, accordingly, I guess, you know, like if you believe in socialism, you can do socialism. If you believe in capitalism, you can do capitalism. You know, I, I think things could live in more of a harmony-esque state than they are today, but I think it has to, I think it really has to come from the market though. I think, I, I think the market makes a change in, in society, like at, at the bottom of the day, is just my perspective. Yeah, you don't want something certainly that's imposed from the top down. Um, I have uh, uh, thought for a long time, uh, thought without ever doing anything about it, but I've thought for a long time that it would be fun. I could imagine like a set of um, of crime novels set in a, a social environment in which all kinds of different overlapping approaches to law and economics are being embodied in different communities, uh, virtual communities and physical communities. And uh, the, uh, the crime novels just kind of provide a convenient opportunity to the, the crime stories for, to just to explore what those different options look like in practice. And right. uh, yeah. uh, uh, I think, uh, I think you kind of have fun with that because you, you definitely, I like the idea very much of emphasizing the value of pluralism. As you say, I think what you're going to find out, of course, pretty quickly is that some things um, will work well, some things will be okay and some things disastrous and uh, people will observe that and uh, they will uh, proceed accordingly. And I think once you have a model in which it is easy for people uh, to, uh, to leave either by, uh, you know, just contracting out of particular relationships or voting with their feet or both, once that's easy, then I think we're going to see pretty quickly what uh what options uh, really are are fruitful a big thing i've actually seen coming back like in the internet world and just in like the younger generation now but even below me is a lot of people are are going kind of back to the old school hippie living in their van down by the river and you know yeah. ma making it work with a small yeah. with a small community of themselves you know throughout the internet mm -hmm. you know they're they're using the internet to their advantage and they're connecting online and traveling from Alaska all the way down to where I am in Georgia and having things in between to work with. And that's, that's literally creating another market. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, the, the internet has created possibilities for uh, discovering uh, connections and communities that you just wouldn't uh, have, uh, have known about otherwise. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think, I would be in a completely different place today if we were still living in a world like the one that, uh, you know, existed in, say, 1975, in which the only way to uh, kind of explore some of these ideas would be in little, you know, Xeroxed, self-published magazines that a few people would read so that you wouldn't really know what the conversation was like unless you happen to know one of the people who was already involved in it, things, right. ideas spread, but they would spread very slowly. Um, yeah, the internet, I think, has changed that uh, so dramatically. I say all the time it's a double-edged sword because, you know, I mean, you, you know, Morpheus will be the first to point out it's something that DARPA come up with, but like, you know, in, in a sense, but like, you know, to mm -hmm. use to use against people and to track people and stuff, but with, there, you've got people out there well, using it to connect with each other. Uh, yeah. You know like, like people who are pure intended, like the three of us and a lot of the other people we spoke to over the years, it, it you find a way to exist 
And so I don't think, I think people need to look at this current economic situation in is not as, oh my God, we're doomed. Is they need to look at it as an opportunity. Like this is a time to think of a better set of systems and institutions to yes. use. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, 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 you know, I look at it, at it like that way too, I guess, because I don't, you know, sure. The current system has definitely failed itself and it's definitely crumbling. I, I think we're living in Rome with the internet, you know, as, 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 it's, mm-hmm. as, as it's crumbling and, and yes, creating your own alternatives or working, working together with, you know, your community or maybe other people that you can talk to, or, you know, even, even people across the country online to, to build your own, own, you know, stabilized in a sense, community of goods and services and things like that without having to rely on giant corporations and the American dollar. Like it, it I'm, I'm always for, getting you know giving somebody a hand in return for them doing something for me too it's you know i mean i i I work on different levels and of course i think other people do a lot of people are looking for a physical currency i do a lot of trading and stuff but that's because i'm literally in the middle of nowhere out in the boonies of the south and i it it takes me over an hour to get to atlanta and i'm not too far from the swamps so you know there's a whole lot out here so we we kind of we tend to already have the small community thing i guess kind of harnessed in place still because it, we're we're a little behind, a little more behind than everybody else as far as infrastructurally. Like, I don't know. Just me, I guess. Just me and my my random randoms. Ah, uh, you got anything good? Anything good you wanted to else you wanted to ask in there, Morpheus? I'm sorry. Sure. Like, I, I would like you know to maybe just get your idea. We don't have to go into any crazy detail, but I have my own ideas about you know how things like you know, water would work. I'm not saying it's systematic detail, but I truly believe that if the state was gone tomorrow, people would naturally build relationships to exist. I don't think, you know, I think a lot of people think that if the state was gone tomorrow, it would, people would die. There would be chaos. But I don't think that would stop people from, building relationships, building friendships, building professional bonds to exist the way they want to. Yeah. So at that level of generality, I'm with you 137%. I think that. Um, So one way you might think about it, uh, it seems to me, is this. Why do people go along with the state? Why do people do what the state uh, tells them to do? And so obviously there's some number of people who go along because they're afraid um, because they just don't want the heavy hand of the state to fall on them. But uh, in the nature of the case, that can't be the primary explanation because there are so many people whose uh, cooperation with the state would have to be uh, ensured for there to be the kind of force needed to uh, drop the hammer in that way, right? right? Um, it's not fear of force, right? I mean, you can't, like, here's a model that's obviously false. Um, you know, Joe Biden, here's the false model. Joe Biden threatens five people around him. Since they don't want him to, to beat them up, they threaten five people around them. And we can move, move out and into this pyramid of power uh, that all depends on Biden's threatening those five people next. Day. Obviously, that's just false. It doesn't work that way. Right. People are 
cooperating with the state mostly because either because they haven't thought about it or because they have thought about it and they think that uh, there's some kind of good reason for them to do so. And I think the good reason usually probably takes one of two forms. Either they think that in some way that I don't understand, uh, they have agreed to go along uh, with uh, the state's dictates, they have consented, or they just think um, the state is pretty important because it's uh, going to keep us from killing each other. But either way, uh, they, they go along and it's their decision to go along because they think there's something valuable there, uh, valuable as a matter of you know following through on their promises or valuable as a means of security provision, something like that, um, in virtue of which uh, they cooperate uh, with the state. And so once you recognize that what's going on is not um, in general, just uh, a matter of uh, imposing uh, uh, force or threatening force. That obviously happens, but that's not the only thing that's going on. Then I think you, you can start to see how, in the absence of the state, um, people can build relationships on the same basis, right? They can make agreements with each other. They can also see some institutions as worth supporting because those institutions are uh, can play valuable roles in in offering protection. And, you know, is that perfect? Does, or might you have institutions offering protection that turn into protection rackets? Well, of course, but there's yeah. nothing inherent about that. And again, the state's a protection racket. So you're not somehow, uh, you know, <laughs> not as if you're, uh, you're, you're, uh, you know, by abandoning the state, you're suddenly subjecting yourself to a th the threat of uh, dealing with a protection racket when you wouldn't have to otherwise. Fundamentally, that is, I think social institutions work because people endorse them and support them. And so when you have social institutions like uh, non-state uh, dispute resolution and safety and security institutions, um, once people start to see those as live possibilities, once people therefore agree, uh, not necessarily in some deliberate, uh, reflective, rational process, but just through their behavior, the habits they adopt and so forth, to support those institutions, then those institutions can indeed function uh, the way they're supposed to, uh, resolving disputes, maintaining order, and, and so forth. And so I think as a result, um, it's, uh, you know, it's just a mistake, right? When people worry about the impossibility of social order without the state, as if there were some magical uh, guarantor of order uh, when the state was in place yeah. that wouldn't be there when other institutions were in place. You recognize uh, social institutions function the way they do, uh, have the authority that they do, have the order maintenance capacity that they do, in significant part because people choose to go along with them and see them as in one way or another deserving of cooperation. And so once people can start to see non-state institutions as deserving of cooperation and as capable of uh, maintaining order and so forth, then I think those institutions can be effective. A great, uh, like a great, just crazy example of that whole thing, I guess, to you know, simplify it for some folks out there is a lot of people like to always argue, but my roads. They're always worried about their roads. If there was no government, who's going to make the roads? And I'm going to tell you right now, you know who did a great job of making up for that? Domino's Pizza. They got tired of having mm, complaints. Mm. They got tired of having complaints about their pizzas being ruined. And until the, until the state shut them down, they were going around and filling in potholes all over the country with their own cement, with their own pavement truck. 
because they wanted to make sure they could deliver pizzas that weren't shaken up due to, you know, terrible roads out there. And I think, I think that's, you know, that's, you know, granted that's another corporation and stuff like that. I mean, just, but it was just how a different, you know, business entirely that had nothing to do yeah. with the road was doing something about the road. And I think, and I think that people need to entrust that, you know, these, these guys out there doing the road they they just got the contract with the state. You know, if you, if you and your town contracted them, you know, I think, you know, that's, these people know how to do this without having the state behind them. It's just. And that's what I try to tell people like the same engineers that run the water supply and the same people that build the roads and the same people that keep you safe from a foreign invasion, right? They're They're all going to know how and want to do the same things without the state. They, they want, they, those things will still be in demand. Therefore, people will still want to learn how to provide them. And I think we just really have to take a step back as a whole, because not everyone's in the same place and just say, okay, the state is involved with the Department of Education. How is that going? Right. There's the Federal Reserve Banking System. How's that going? There's the, the, the U.S. Co- court system. How's that going? Well, centralization the of seems to be the problem. System. How's that going? There's free health care. How's that going? All the answers to all these questions is absolutely terrible. So what's the common denominator here? The state. It's the common denominator. Private sector allows for innovation through competition. So deregulation allows business to to be more competitive, which means they have to make a better product for less money. Sure. And that is truly a free market. If we remove the state from these systems, we'll probably have clean drinking water in Flint, Michigan, where most of the world's fresh water is located. Right. (laughs) You know, I want to, sorry, please go ahead. Well, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say that you know that the the basically the beast is, the beast stays alive because of everything that we put into the beast, but at the same time that's its weak point because we can take these skills and put them into the private area and you know quit quit feeding the be- quit feeding the beast and that would be ultimately how to destroy it personally. But- yeah, so I, I was just reminded uh, by what Morpheus was saying. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar uh, with. Um, uh, the work of Butler Schaefer, and in particular with Butler's book in Restraint of Trade. Is that a is that familiar? No, not familiar with that, but, but I will I be after myself. Today. Okay, <laughs> Butler Schaefer. Um, uh, unfortunately, Butler uh, Butler just died uh, in uh, early early 2020. But um, Butler was a, a longtime uh, anarchist uh, who uh, uh, wrote. Uh, he was a, a law professor in Los Angeles who wrote a variety of books, but I think In Restraint of Trade is is, a, is an exceptionally good one. Uh, and I just thought about it in connection with what Morpheus was saying, so I wanted to call it to people's attention. Um, the uh, So a number of people might be familiar with an earlier book by the new left historian Gabriel Kalko, a book called The Triumph of Conservatism. And uh, uh, Kalko is interested in the way in which efforts to uh, foster 
regulation uh, by the federal government, especially antitrust regulation, but not just that in the 19th century, uh, really uh, were pitched as designed to protect people from rapacious businesses, but actually served to uh, protect established businesses from upstart competitors. And um, uh, similarly, uh, Calco addresses those those matters in a book called Railroads and Regulation. And you know, I may not have uh, uh, totally accurately characterized his position, but the point is that that uh, pro business regulation is much more common than we think. And so, what Butler did, so that uh, Calco book, uh, The Triumph of Conservatism, uh, I think. Um, he covers a period in the from the latter part of the 19th century through, I don't know, 1912, something like that. I'm forgetting, maybe 1918. I'm forgetting the exact date. So Butler uh, tells a story that begins in uh, I think 1916 and then runs through the end of the 1930s. Uh, that really continues that narrative of Calco's and makes I think just the the point that. I think uh, something you said was uh, was gesturing at, namely that, um, you know, when there really is open access to markets and there is genuinely open competition, uh, unavoidably uh, prices go down, consumers benefit, uh, and established players are unsettled. Um, Calco, of course, you know, didn't necessarily buy that economic point to the same degree that the Butler, who uh, you know was very much a libertarian, did. Um, and so the idea is. Um, it's really unsurprising then to find uh, well-connected, uh, established uh, uh, firms uh, trying to trying their best to keep competition from happening. So the subtitle of uh, Butler's book, uh, In Restraint of Trade, is The Business Campaign Against Competition, and then the, the dates, whatever they are. And people who uh, uh, don't stop to think about it, who somehow think that you know businesses love competition, fail to understand the difference between being pro-market and being pro-business, right? Being pro-market yep. means recognizing the benefit to all of us of a genuinely open market in which uh, businesses compete for consumer dollars. That's very different from wanting any particular business to win or any particular sector to, to, right. to win. And uh, so uh, Butler tells this story then. It's the same kind of story Calco does, but he brings it uh, uh, into the late 30s, talking about how businesses repeatedly, well-connected businesses repeatedly sought to um, blunt the force of competition. And so the irony is that the so-called... Uh, uh, first New Deal, uh, the New Deal uh, regs that often involved uh, the kind of corporatist measures uh, that, uh, you know, tried to bring particular industries under uh, the control of uh, uh, unified decision-making structures. Uh, this was all exactly what the best connected players in those businesses wanted to do. They wanted to engage in price fixing, per se, you know, but there's no way you can engage in, in price fixing over time if, you're just dependent on a cartel arrangement with with other businesses because it's always going to be so tempting for other businesses to defect, right? They're not going to want to maintain right. the cartel. They want you to maintain the cartel, but they want to to under to undersell you on the QT. And uh, so the only way for that kind of price fixing arrangement to work is if there are cartel arrangements that are maintained uh, by the force of the state. And so uh, the irony then is uh, the kind of that those those early uh, New Deal measures uh, turned out in in many cases to be exactly what um, 
you know, what well-connected businesses had wanted for the last couple of decades. And I say irony there because I think there's this perception of the uh, these New Deal measures as motivated by some kind of, you know, radical, uh, uh, you know, anti-business uh, ideology, you know, probably, you know, closet Marxism. And look, there were people in Roosevelt's circle who were crazy uh, statists of a kind of conventionally statist leftist variety. But I think it's important to recognize the degree to which uh, what actually happened uh, mirrored and mimicked and undoubtedly was inspired by, uh, uh, you know, some very pro-business stuff, not pro-market stuff, but pro-business stuff that had been circulating for the last 20 years, in which businesses wanted to escape from the discipline of competition. So anyway, Butler Schaefer in Restraint of Trade, check it out. Uh, I will. And I, I, I just want to say, like, uh, I also think that um, if you if you take all these these concepts we just discussed and you apply it, you know, just for people listening, you apply it to any sector of what you consider society. If you, you really think about it, things would be better. Things would be voluntary. And I think it's ironic. There's this tax the rich movement, right? As it's some kind of like radical bottom idea. (laughs) That's not going to affect them. They're the rich because they control markets now. Okay. So if you tax them, the money is going to the government that props them up and justifies them increasing their prices, further redistributing wealth to those on top. And I think people really need to think about what that means when they say it. I say tax no one and let people voluntarily support the things that they want. Humans are better than most people want to believe. Yeah, I think uh, the... um I think that's certainly right. That is, people really do support uh, uh, causes that they that they care about. Um, I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, even um, the uh, uh, you know the the very wealthy in this society who support a, a range of causes. Um, so I, I think your your point that uh, much. Uh, great wealth in the society is a product of corrupt relationships with the state. I, I think that's a that's really important to to uh, take seriously. But uh, just ignoring that, think about the way in which very wealthy people support a variety of good causes. Well, you say they get tax deductions, but they don't get deductions for the whole of what they spend. You right. know. So if I think about, you know, say I make a charitable donation of $100,000 uh, and maybe because uh, of my tax bracket, I pay 50% of that uh, in, uh, in taxes, uh, you know, very much at the high end. If you take state and federal taxes, I pay 50% of that. So, I, um, so no, nonetheless, uh, then if I, get a, if I get a tax deduction on that, uh, that 50% tax bracket means that my, uh, my t- overall tax burden is reduced by 50,000. That's the, uh, the, the key thing there. 
Um, but I'm still paying 50,000 to this good cause, the remaining 50,000 to this good cause that I wouldn't, right. that, that I could have just spent on myself. So the fact that people choose to do that does, I think, say something about the fact that they desire to, um, uh, you know, to support causes uh, that uh, that aren't just limited to their own their own narrow interests. Uh, one thing I wanted, and I, what I said there was a little a little muddled, but I hope it'll be uh, clear what I was what I was getting at. I, the um, one thing I wanted to stress uh, that I think is important is that people with power and people whose relationships with the state constitute uh, their, their social influence, their power, um, they have that in common, but they are not um, monolithic, right? They're not monolithic. And, um, you know, so you think about the way in which, uh, you know, say the Marxists like to talk about the state as the expression is that I'm sure you've run across the state is the executive committee of the ruling class. And so the, the, yeah. and the point that I make there is um, you can recognize that some uh, members of uh, elite groups are on the outs with other members of elite groups, and they don't fare well in particular cases. Uh, and perhaps one thing that the state does precisely is to work to keep uh, uh, unruly uh, elites in line in support of what uh, you know other elite groups take to be to be beneficial. Uh, so uh, it's just important to recognize. I think that diversity of uh, uh, interests and and so forth. Oh yeah, absolutely, and not to get down like a weird rabbit hole. But just briefly, other subject I, I really like to talk about with people is pointing out that there's also a war within the power structure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, always, there's always a fight. Even when the narrative is repeated the same, there's always a conflict for power. The people that seek power want more power. That's Absolutely. You know, there's a there's a book which I certainly wouldn't claim was perfect in any way, but I think it illustrates the uh, the model that you're talking about in a very nice way. And I wonder if it's one that you're acquainted with. Um, and it's Carl Oglesby books, Oglesby's book, The Yankee and Cowboy War. That- I, am, yes, I am very familiar with that book. That is that. Yes, sir. And, and, and so Oglesby, as uh, some listeners will be aware, was. Um, president of Students for a Democratic Society back in the 60s. Uh, but that's a group that often attracted people whose politics ended up uh, more kind of conventionally social democratic, ended up on the new left uh, in uh, a more statist uh, way in, in various ways. Oglesby, uh, certainly in a different sense on the new left, was much more of a libertarian. And uh, uh, he wrote a great uh, memoir uh, years later called uh, Ravens in the Storm, which I heartily recommend. But anyway, um, in the Yankee and Cowboy War, he's basically talking about how kind of different regional and therefore industrial and kind of social uh, uh, groups, groups that are, you know, within the elite uh, are very much at war with each other and how you can understand a range of political conflicts uh, in, I think he's mainly interested in the post-World War II era uh, with an eye to these divisions within the elites that, you know, the, the Yankees and the Cowboys are uh, at each other's throats. They may yeah. still be, as far as we're concerned, uh, the, these two groups, uh, the Yankees you might think about as kind of Northeastern elites of whom say the Bushes might be great examples, uh, the Cowboys more Western uh, or oriented, often folks in the oil industry and so forth. You've got different groups with power here uh, and different groups with social influence, and they may be united 
in one way or another and trying to maintain their power over the rest of us. But then, but among themselves, they're, uh, they're definitely engaged in ongoing conflict. Absolutely. And I try to, to make it easier for people and like shorter posts and things. Uh, I try to point the situation for the control of power in the United States right now as a war between nationalist tyrant authoritarians and globalist ones. And they, they have to work together somewhat to stay in control and control the narratives, but they're at war with each other about the way they want our economic systems to work and how they want our health systems to work. And there's a group pushing towards a globalist, even bigger, even more inefficient government with less options. And there's one fighting for the maintain, I guess you could say, what they think is normal with what we have now. My, my friend Roderick Long, uh, from whom everybody should welcome the chance to learn where possible, uh, talks about the uh, relationship between uh, church and state in the Middle Ages in Europe. And he says, look, um, you know, these two groups are constantly, and of course they're complex and there's not a single uh, sort of uh, point of view for each one, but just for simplicity's sake, we can just talk about two big groups that are constantly jostling for power in this era. Um, they simultaneously, uh, you know, the, the state would like to dominate the church, uh, the church would like to dominate the state. At the yep. same time, church and state together have every reason to cooperate to uh, prevent ordinary people from pushing back against the authority of both. And yep. so uh, they've got there. And so he, he says, look, this is pretty much parallel to the relationship between kind of economic elites on the one hand and political elites on the other that uh, in, in our society. And uh, we can yeah. see uh, these two, uh, you know, kind of we can see them as kind of factions. It's one way of analyzing factions within the power elite. It's not the only way, but uh, certainly. Yeah. It's just it's just one of many, I think, you know, and just current narratives they're trying to push of like division amongst us. You know, for a while it was the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. Then they, you know, Roe versus Wade, not even official rulings to stir the pot. And I think they know the power structure on, you know, whatever you want to label the jostling sides, you know, whatever works for you, anybody out there. They they realize that their control of the narrative is falling apart and they're concerned and everything they're doing now, which seems like accelerated, like the madness just keeps getting crazier. It seems like to a lot of people, it it's because they the wheels are falling off. True. People are more aware now, like Gary said earlier, the Internet has changed the game as far as gaining intelligence if you want to and you said it's a double-edged sword which is true but less people are listening to the narrative yeah. on that that weapon yeah. and more people are using it for good and i i think that people should have hope right now that you know things may be going bad but i think that you guys a lot of people listening that just you know are in dark mode they need to understand that nothing worth doing comes easy Sure. There's going to be pain before there's growth. And I, I think there's a lot of things to be hopeful about at the end of the day. 
absolutely and and you know you know around here I, I i like to say i like to think that it's our goal to destabilize the concept of the state in the minds of people who believe in it and you know we've the best way to accomplish that is to encourage these acts of I guess, sabotage, if you will, you know, using the black market and using alternative sources and doing things outside of the will of the state, you know, you know, again, not trying to harm anybody or anything doing that, doing in those things. But I'm saying like, you know, buy, buy your milk from your local farmer that's got raw milk or whatever, or buy, you know, stuff like that. Just, you know, you're, you're more black market type things because this exposes the instability and failures of the government and the services they provide and like it, I think it can help take the monopolistic control away from them is to continue as Gary said earlier to be building be building this black market infrastructure in a sense I mean paraphrasing a little bit but in a sense to be to be building this black market infrastructure this other stuff to the side so that as Rome continues to crumble there is going to be something to turn to and that's that's going to be the best market around it, I think, is, is you know, no, let's not focus so much on the fear of the state and what they're doing because they, you know, they can't get every one of us. You know, they're, we're, we're not con we're not connected to. Right. Don't lose hope. Yet, with you know, all, you know don't, yeah, don't, don't lose hope. hope. But read but things that contradict your beliefs, like yes. things yes. Gary gave me today. I can't wait to look into them. And, and you got to challenge your beliefs if they can't be challenged. You know, uh, and I promise to have all the links to the books that, uh, you know, Gary has talked about. And I actually found while I was sitting here looking at that, uh, the Yankee and the Cowboy, there is a version of it that's being read to you on YouTube for free. If you know, you don't, oh, fine. I didn't know that was out there. That's and, awesome. uh, and, 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 and because actually a paperback, I, I was looking, a paperback version of the book is over 160 yeah, bucks. Nobody has, you know, that book has fallen out of print. I would actually sure. love to find out who currently uh, is the copyright holder. No, no reason, not because right. I'm a fan of copyright, but because I don't want to, you know, create unnecessarily legal, unnecessary legal conflicts and arrange to republish it because I think right. it's a book that deserves to be in print, but I got to uh, read it. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I've never brought it up before. I think it's, I do think it's another great, you know, you know, just a aspect of things. And I guess when I was sitting here thinking about it and the way you guys were explaining it for people out there that can't wrap their head around it, think of the Godfather two, like you've got the infrastructure trying to work against the infrastructure, you know, and, but it's, it, it's a funny way yeah, to get into people it. People are always going to want order. Yeah. That doesn't change. Yeah. I'm an anarchist, but that doesn't mean I, I want disorder in my life. Right? No. It's just how we go about it. Yes. Right. To be an anarchist is to be opposed to rulers, not to rules. Correct. Uh, right. Correct. We can't Couldn't emphasize say that enough, people. So, you know, I, again, I appreciate, Gary, you coming on and having such an Absolutely. excellent conversation with us again. Yeah, thank you, Gary. To having you again. Uh, Everybody uh, out Appreciate the way you guys have engaged today. Uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to hang out with you. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And um, you guys, you know, while I'll have the link so you can check out the books that Gary was talking about today, I'll also make sure y'all check out our new merch store, which we'll also have linked. And you guys all, all have a great night out there in Unconstitutional Awakening World. We'll see y'all next time. Rock on.